We're in Ephesians chapter 4. We have been looking at what is popularly called the fivefold ministry. And we've gone through a process, as most of you know, where it's been a rotation. Jay leads off, then Mike Haas follows up, and then I bring up the rear, and we each speak on one of the five elements in turn, so you get three different perspectives. And at this point in time, now that we've hit the pastor, we're looking at message number 12 in this series. So as I prepared, as I did the last time, I went back and I wanted to look at this verse 11 within context again. So let me read it to you. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance with and to one another. In love being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression He ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man in the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I'm going to read a very small portion of that again out of the J.B. Phillips translation. It reads just slightly different when we get down to verse 11. His gifts unto men were varied. Some he made as messengers, some prophets, some preachers of the gospel. To some he gave the power to guide and teach his people. So I was asking myself some questions as I was preparing for today. And one of them was, Michael, who were the gifts given to? Who were these gifts for? And as I checked back, it tells me that, and he gave gifts unto men. So these gifts were given to men and women, all of humanity, if you will. And I began to think of times when perhaps, and I think you can relate, when you thought of somebody, you were going to give them a gift, and so you spent a lot of time thinking about what would really be meaningful to them. You want to get them something special. Something that makes a difference to them. Something that will touch their heart. And you spend a great deal of time and you pick out what you think is just the best gift that's really going to 
benefit them and, and mean something to them. And you give them this gift, and to your dismay, it's kind of brushed aside, barely even acknowledged. And I thought about the fact that God, in his lavish love, is bestowing these gifts unto all of humanity, all men and women everywhere, whether they believe or not. These gifts are for everyone. And yet, for some of us, it's very hard to recognize that these are magnificent, wonderful gifts. So what are these gifts? Well, again, I'm going to refer to the J.B. Phillips and use their terminology a little bit. Messengers, the apostles, prophets. I think of them as speakers. Pretty soon I'll be down to midget size. Preachers of the gospel. Those are the evangelists. And then shepherds who are guides and teachers. And depending upon your translation of the Bible, I use the New American Standard Version, the NASB. It does use the word pastor, pastor and teacher. It's the only time that the English word pastor is going to appear. The Greek word, and Jay pointed it out, is poimen, which means shepherd. So some of the translations will use that word, shepherd. And in the Phillips, he renders it guides and teachers. So we have these gifts. And one of the things I noticed was that although it's called the five-fold ministry, or tradition has it, that it's termed the five-fold ministry, As I went down through, I noticed the use of the word some. He gave some, some he made as messengers, some prophets, some preachers of the gospel, and to some he gave the power to guide and teach his people. Almost looked like four to me. There was some before everything except the last two, which seemed coupled together. What is the purpose of the gifts? As I reflected on these gifts, they struck me as servant roles. These were servant role gifts given to all of humanity. And it reminded me of when Jesus said, The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve. So these were servant roles. And as Paul writes, his gifts were made that Christians might be properly equipped for their service, that the whole body might be built up. So I began to think, okay, the purpose of these gifts is to equip believers, Christians, for service. What service? Whatever God asks you to do. Whatever God asks you to do. And I have a little book that Sheila, my wife Sheila and I are going through on almost a daily basis. It was written by one of my favorite authors, Michael Phillips. And interestingly enough, his name doesn't even appear anywhere on the outside of the thing. And essentially, the title is called The Commands. And he simply put together in certain categories, group by categories, the commands of Jesus. 
It's been very, very helpful because the essence of being a Christian is that we do and obey what Jesus asks us to do. And so these gifts were given that we might be properly equipped to do whatever God asks us to do. And that the whole body might be built up. Whose body? Christ. Christ's body. For how long? How long are these gifts going to be in operation? How long, how long are these gifts going to be equipping? Paul tells us that too. Until the time comes when in the unity of common faith and common knowledge of the Son of God, we arrive at real maturity. That measure of development which is meant by the fullness of Christ. And I was reflecting back on what we read earlier in chapter 4 at the beginning about being one in the Spirit, one body, one Spirit, one hope, one baptism, one Lord. This theme of unity that Paul writes about in Ephesians. So for how long? Until we reach full maturity. When is that? When we're like Jesus. So we've got these gifts. They're going to help us to do what God asks us to do until we get to the place where we're like Jesus. Pretty good stuff. And then I began to ponder and wonder, is there a reason for the order the sequence in which these gifts are listed. And I'm going to just share my musings. I don't know how accurate they are. These are just my musings. But it was making some sense to me. You can make your own determination. So I started with the apostles, the messengers, and I think of them as these are the foundation layers. These are eyewitnesses who saw and heard, and according to John and 1 John, handled, touched Jesus. They had that kind of familiarity with him. John describes it in 1 John as, We are writing to you about something which has always existed, yet which we ourselves actually heard and saw with our own eyes something which we had opportunity to observe closely and even to hold in our hands, something of the word of life. For it was life which appeared before us. We saw it. We are eyewitnesses of it and are now writing to you about it. It was the very life of all ages, the life that has always existed with the Father, which actually became visible in person to us. We repeat, we really saw and heard what we are now writing to you about. We want you to be with us in this, in this fellowship with the Father and Jesus Christ, His Son. We write and tell you about it, so that our joy may be complete. So these foundation layers were eyewitnesses who heard, saw, and had a close personal interaction with Jesus Christ as He walked about on the earth. They communicated the gospel, the life and words of Jesus Christ. And Jesus actually called them apostles. And that was interesting to me. I was thinking as I was, as I was preparing, who gave these guys the name apostles? And in Luke chapter 6, verse 13, 
He's gathering them together, and he names them apostles. So that's pretty cool. I guess they're apostles. If they're apostles to Jesus, they're apostles to me. Foundation layers. Prophets. There's no New Testament right off the bat when the church is formed. And this is an oral tradition culture. Prophets, we know, speak the words of God. And I was thinking perhaps one of the role of early church prophets was to speak the sayings of Jesus. By oral tradition, keep these things alive. The prophets, passing on the sayings of Jesus, the words of God. Evangelists, I think of them as the spreaders. They spread the good news wherever they go. You've got the foundation, you've got the sayings of Jesus, you've got the spreaders. People are starting to believe the church is growing. And then added to the gifts are the shepherds. Those who guide and teach those who believe. And it made sense to me. This sequence, this order had a beauty to it. So now we get to the component of pastor. And I'm going to think of it, I think of it in my mind as shepherd, one who guides and teaches Christians. And I'm going to give a disclaimer before I dive into pastor. Because as Jay well knows, and I give Jay utmost high marks for his courage, and as Tim knows, both men my friends, both men have benefited my life. Both men are shepherds. But they have heard me take exception to the institution of pastor. And so I give Jay credit for allowing me to participate in this because I take a lot of exception to the institution of pastor. So what I want to do next is go through a little bit of history and see what has happened over time to this particular gift of shepherd. Has it changed? What was the gift originally like? What impact? has the change had on the church today? So I'm going to start out. So my disclaimer is this. My objection is not against individuals. It is against an institution of what has come down. A quote by a guy named Richard Hansen, a theologian in the United Kingdom. He says, It is a universal tendency in the Christian religion as in many other religions, to give a theological interpretation to institutions which have developed gradually through a period of time for the sake of practical usefulness, and then read that interpretation back into the earliest periods and infancy of these institutions, attaching them to an age when, in fact, nobody imagined that they had such a meaning. Paraphrase, If the early church 
could observe what the institution of pastor has become, would they even recognize it as this gift of shepherd? So let's take a look. The first century church. Some of the characteristics of this first century church. There isn't any official leadership. It doesn't exist. There are shepherds. There are elders of equal footing who were shepherds or overseers. Essentially, it is an organization that is organic with horizontal relationships. We get a little hint of what their meetings might have been like when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 from Paul when he says, Well then, my brothers, whenever you meet, let everyone be ready to contribute a psalm, a piece of teaching, a spiritual truth, or a tongue with an interpreter. Everything should be done to make your church strong in the faith. Notice his use of the word everyone. Let everyone be ready to contribute. There is not, in the very beginnings of our Christian church history, there is not this audience-speaker relationship. It doesn't exist. So what happened? We move forward. And now we're in the second century. And we come across this guy by the name of Ignatius of Antioch. And in Ignatius's mind, he needed something or someone that could be a remedy for dispelling false doctrine and establishing church unity. So he comes up with the idea of a bishop. One bishop over all. Look at the elders, grab one, make him the super bishop, the bishop of Rome. That's who would protect the church from heresy. Uh, And in Ignatius' mind, there had to be developed a rigid power structure patterned after the centralized political structure of Rome. Single bishop rule would rescue the church from heresy and internal strife. So he wrote a series of letters in A.D. 107 on his way to Rome, where he was going to be martyred. And I'm sure his intentions were good. I'm not questioning his intentions. But let me quote from some of these letters that he wrote on his way to Rome. All of these are little snippets. All of you... Follow the bishop as Jesus Christ follows the Father. No one is to do any church business without the bishop. Wherever the bishop appears, let there the people be. You yourselves must never act independently of your bishop and clergy. You should look on your bishop as a type of the Father. Whatever he approves, that is pleasing to God. So the bishop alone had the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper, conducting baptisms, giving counsel, disciplining church members, approving marriages, and preaching sermons. For the bishop, said Ignatius, must preside over the elements of the Lord's Supper and distribute them. 
So that's Ignatius in the second century. We move off forward in time a little bit. And we're now in the third century. We run across the guy, and there's a lot more people in between these. I just picked out some of the primary characters. We have Cyprian of Carthage. And through his influence, it led to the establishment of the official clergy. And a portion of the Lord's flock was assigned to each sub-bishop who was head of the area church. So we've got one super-bishop, and we've got other little bishops. And he made the case for patterning the church hierarchy after the Roman Empire. The fourth century comes along, and we get Constantine, the emperor of Rome. He's the new Caesar. In the fourth century, Constantine mandated Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. And Will Durant, who was a 20th century historian, had this to say about that period of time. Will says, when Christianity conquered Rome, the ecclesiastical structure of the pagan church, and pagan is just another name for uh, Greek-Roman culture, the ecclesiastical structure of the pagan church, the title investments of the Pontifex Maximus, and the pageantry of immemorial ceremony pass like maternal blood into the new religion, and captive Rome captured her conqueror. In other words, pagan Rome had as much influence on the visible church as the visible Christian church had on Rome. And with Constantine came a practice called ordination into the clergy. And ordination comes from the Roman practice of appointing men to civil office through official ceremony. And as these bishops became ordained, the entire process down to the very words came straight from the Roman civic world. At last, the Reformation comes, 1517 to 1648. And in words, the Reformation embraced the priesthood of all believers without the need for an intermediary. Sounded pretty darn good. We got back to what many of us believe, that we are part of the priesthood, that there is no one between us and God save Jesus Christ. So it sounded pretty good, yet it still held, even during the Reformation, that ministry was a closed institution for the called and ordained. Ministry is a closed institution for the called and ordained. Now, there was a group of Christians at the time called the Anabaptists, and they had two particular characteristics that got them into a heap of trouble. One was, according to their thinking, baptism should be something that was engaged in by folks of enough mental capacity to make an informed decision. So infant baptism was not part of their stock in trade. And that 
had a great upsetting influence for the Roman Catholic Church. And so they were persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church to the extent that they would be killed. You would think that the Reformers would be a little bit different. But the Anabaptists had another characteristic. They believed it was every Christian's right to stand up and speak in their meetings. It was not the domain of some kind of professional clergy. Martin Luther was so opposed to this practice that he said that it came from, and I quote, the pit of hell. And those who were guilty of it should be put to death. So the Anabaptists were persecuted by both the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. And John Calvin comes along. And early in the Reformation, pastors were more commonly referred to as preachers. John Calvin preferred the term pastor, which is simply the Latin word for shepherd. And so pastor grew in terms of favor and common use, as it is to this day. So that is a little bit of the history of the office, the institution of pastor. A far, far cry from the gift of shepherd. And in terms of the institution. And very, very different from the sort of thing where we think of gathering together each of us prepared to contribute. 1 Peter 5. Let's take a quick look at that. First Peter 5 is often used and referred to as Jay did in his conversation about pastor. Let me start reading in verse 1. Therefore I exert the pastor among you as your fellow pastor. Now yours doesn't quite read that way, does it? doesn't read that way at all. And if I were to go and open the, open the Bible and say, now where are the qualifications of a pastor? People would usually say, well, look in Timothy and look in Titus. And yet, it's the word elder, shepherd. So it's therefore I exhort the elders, plural, elders, plural, among you as your fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Now we are indeed blessed to have men like Jay and Tim and Mike Haas in our midst. 
There are many, from what I understand, in this fellowship who come to this fellowship having experienced, as countless other Christians have, challenges to their heart and mind by a hierarchical, pastor-at-the-top-of-the-heap kind of organization. I would not personally have come and become part of this fellowship if it were not for the fact that there were multiple elders. And as Jay and Tim know, I thought of them as elders. I have never once called Jay Pastor Jay. I would not harm him in such a fashion. Uh, you know, the presence of Mike when Tim took his, took his uh, sabbatical in the transition is comforting to me. Although I have great confidence in Jay, I need Mike as well. I need a multiplicity of godly elders to care and watch over me. George Barna. How many have heard of the Barna Group? Anybody heard of the Barna Group? The Barna Research Group is the premier Christian research organization. Anytime statistics are quoted in the Christian community, from Focus on the Family or anybody else, if you look at the footnote, it's probably coming from the Barna Research Group. George Barna is a very well-known guy. George Barna and Frank Viola, a pretty prolific Christian writer, wrote a book in 2008. I'm going to read a quote from that book. This quote was from Frank Viola's hand. The pastor is the fundamental figure of the Protestant faith. He is the chief cook and bottle washer of today's Christianity. So prevailing is the pastor in the minds of most Christians that he is better known, more highly praised, and more heavily relied upon than Jesus Christ himself. Remove the pastor and modern Christianity collapses. Remove the pastor and virtually every Protestant church will be thrown into a panic. Remove the pastor and Protestantism as we know it dies. The pastor is the dominating focal point, mainstay, and centerpiece of the modern church. He is the embodiment of Protestant Christianity. But here is the profound irony. There is not a single verse in the entire New Testament that supports the existence of the modern-day pastor. He simply did not exist in the early church. I asked myself many times over the course of this series, what difference does all this make? Twelve messages focusing on almost a single particular verse. Now, I do believe that there are some verses that you could preach on and explore to the end of your living days. We had twelve messages. But I want to make it personal. Michael, what difference has this made? Because God didn't make any of us just to pack some information into our heads as a bunch of facts. It needs to change and impact our love and understanding of God and the way we live. And for the longest time, until this very week, and probably until yesterday, I was coming up empty. I was saying, I don't know. I don't know if this is having much of any impact on me. What's up? 
Well, fortunately, the Spirit of God kind of broke through, and I can share mine with you to some extent. And each of you, hopefully, we will have an opportunity to maybe at the close of all of this series to have a little more interaction and understand this particular question. What difference has this series made? Because I do believe that God has brought it for a purpose. I do believe that. So for me personally, it helped me appreciate the wonder of God's plan. He sends his son for you and me, who dies for you and me, to bring us back to the Father. And as Jesus dies and is resurrected again, he gives gifts. And these gifts are these wonderful servant roles. Apostles. Prophets. Evangelists. Pastors and teachers. That his church would grow and change human history forever. So I marveled at the wisdom and simplicity and lavish wonder of God and his love for us. And as our love deepens, our desire to obey grows. And so as Sheila and I continue working through the commands, my heart's a little more full of of love and a desire to obey. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So it has helped in that regard. It has also helped because as many of you know, I've kind of shared before, maybe privately, maybe even collectively, I can't recall. I hate sitting in pews looking at the backs of people's heads. I don't like it. Is it better that from time to time I'm up here and I can speak and I can look at your faces? Yes and no. I love looking at your faces. I really do. But there's still something that doesn't feel right. I want to hear and learn from you too. And I know that to get to know you individually as people, that usually is going to happen before that bell rings or after we say our closing prayer in a few fleeting minutes. And I'm not built that way. I kind of percolate slow. It takes me time. So it helped me to see that this angst I feel about the institutional program, church kind of thing, doesn't work for me. Never has, probably never will. So it did that. But it did something else, too. It took a little bit of a chip off one of my shoulders. Because I used to say, pastor doesn't even exist. And I didn't even like to say the word. One of my best friends in all of life was a pastor. He shot and killed himself. Shot and killed himself because I think the institution caused him to fear being human and real. And he slipped into a sin and found he couldn't share it with another living soul. And the only answer in his mind was to take a gun to his head and blow his brains out. So the 
I don't, I can say the word pastor now, just from tomorrow to today, without a bit of animosity, because my mind says that's Latin for shepherd, and shepherds are elders. And although this institution of pastor has neutered the body of Christ, in my opinion, neutered, kept them mute, kept them quiet in pews, it is full of many shepherds with hearts that love and care for the people. They're just trapped and caught in this institutional tsunami that's hundreds of years long. And so as, as I close, my prayer is that I think we're poised to do two things, to have a collective discussion on what difference does this series, did this series make in our lives? And what would Father have us do next? Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. This is a wonderful place. I thank with tremendous fondness and great affection on Tim and Jenny, on Jay and Christine, on Mike and Patty. Shepherds all. I thank you that you've given us your word and your spirit that we might, by all the grace and all the forms of grace you put into our lives, including these gifts, these servant roles, be equipped to do whatever you ask us to do, build each other up until we all become like Jesus. So in whatever form that is going to take, whatever way you cause it to come about, I know that it will surely take place. I thank you for opening my own eyes and helping to convict me in, of certain prejudices and wrong-spirited thinking in my own mind and heart. I thank you for your lavish dispensation of gifts. And I pray that we will be bold, thinking Christians, constantly depending upon you to lead us forward in whatever manner you choose to the everlasting glory of your name. Amen.